Silence. It flashed from the woodwork and the walls. It smote him with an awful total power, as if generated by a vast mill. It rose up from the floor, up out of the tattered gray wall-to-wall carpeting. It unleashed itself from the broken and semi-broken appliances in the kitchen, the dead machines which hadn't worked in all the time Isidore had lived here. From the useless pole lamp in the living room it oozed out, meshing with the empty and wordless descent of itself from the fly-specked ceiling. We're headed for another one of our uh, recurring segments. Maybe you remember this, but I feel like we do have a recurring segment where Chris remembers something formative that Jesse said over two decades ago. Oh, yeah. Very uh, common. <laughs> it's like a, a very normal segment for us. Uh, do you remember describing Davis as the place that you want to move to if you want to live in California, but you actually want to live in Nebraska? No, but that's good. <laughs> it is good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's very good. I've remembered it for over 15 years. I sometimes wonder if you have another friend or other friends who are also clever and you just attribute all the good quotes to me. Like I, Maybe. I'm like a, you know, white middle-aged middle manager in a writer's room, just like hoovering up all the good ideas. You're the opposite of Dorian Gray, but in a writerly term. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't actually know Dorian Gray, unfortunately. Oh, well, but. it's the, you know, it's the, uh, like, you know, Dorian Gray never gets old, but there's a picture of him getting ancient in, like, a room somewhere. Oh, and, yeah. And, you know, and so, like, uh, yes, there's, like, there's, like, a dumb Jesse Dukes in a closet that you've hid away somewhere, and this one is the one that is uh, spouting all of the, the magic. A replicant, as it were. Yeah, nice, good, good segue. Uh, way to we 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 got there. But what are we talking about today? <laughs> we are talking about um, Philip K. Dick's 1968 novel novella. Uh, Do androids dream of electric sheep? Which was turned into the Ridley Scott. I wasn't sure. I was like, I'm pretty sure it's Ridley Scott, and yes. now I'm just going to say it and be like, I didn't check that before wandering in here. Um, the 1982 Ridley Scott film Blade Runner. Um, and uh, yeah, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep has kind of attained the status of, I'd say, classic. Yeah, well, and I'm not even going to throw any modifiers on that. And what I don't actually know is, was it considered a classic before Blade Runner? Or is it sort of famous as the source material for Blade Runner? I suspect it's more the latter. I suspect more people have seen Blade Runner than have read this book. That would be my guess. And I I suspect many people who read it, read it, have read it after seeing the movie, at least in our generation, or people our age or younger. That's certainly true for me. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, I wonder. I think this book, I'm tipping my hand, I think this book is deserving of classic status without the movie. It's hard for me to say that, but I really... I don't know. It's going to be interesting to to get to to walk through this together because yeah. like a lot of the like a lot of books in this genre, there are moments of brilliance and some some moments of clunkiness. Um, yeah, and I'm yeah, I'm really excited to talk about it. But let's uh, let's get into the recap. Uh, do you want to kick it off? Yeah. Um, okay. So we meet Deckard and his wife. Um, we learn pretty quickly that he's something he's somehow police adjacent and he he hunts andes which we figure out pretty quickly are androids um which sometimes malfunction and escape and threaten humans and we meet him in a kind of a waking argument with his wife about uh something called a mood organ uh which is a device you dial um and to to set your mood um and um that's kind of the first chapter is they have a long argument about that. And then we also, he, 
goes up onto his roof. Uh, everybody in this world has kind of flying cars, hover cars, sort of like, and so the roof is the parking area. And up on the roof, he encounters a neighbor, and we learn from the conversation he has with his neighbor that Deckard, in fact, has an electric sheep uh, to his dismay. Um, he wants a real sheep, and we learn sort of through kind of, if you're paying close attention to the conversation, what you sort of figure out is that there has been a terrible war and that one of the results of the war is that most non-human animals on Earth have died. Many people have left Earth and gone to colonies, I think on Mars and other maybe other places too. There's radiation, um, so people have to wear like radiation suits and glasses and lead cod pieces. Um, and... Um, you know, he heads off to work after having this conversation with his neighbor who has a horse, a Percheron, I think, who is pregnant. And he is openly, nakedly jealous of his neighbor. And we learn pretty quickly that that animals, domestic animals, wild animals, are just considered incredibly valuable in this world uh, for their scarcity. And that... In the same way that somebody in 1960s might covet their neighbor's Cadillac, uh, this is a world of 2019 in post-World War T, uh, I think World War Terminus, in which Terminus. People, people covet each other's animals. And many, many people apparently have ersatz fake electric animals designed to fool their neighbors and friends. And I'll let you take it yeah, from there's there. Yeah, there's a real sense of uh, keeping up with the Jetsons. Keep, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Keeping up with the Jetsons, yeah. Yeah. Um, we meet a second character uh, in the early chapters named J.R. Isidore, who is a special. Yeah. Um, so specials are people whose genetics have been wounded by the fallout from the World War. Um, they're not allowed to reproduce and they're not allowed to emigrate. Uh, worse for JR, he's also failed an intelligence test, so he is called a chicken head. <laughs> a chicken head special. Yeah. Um, really a, a very maligned class of people in this particular world. Um, people just slightly less well off than even him end up in psychiatric institutions and he lives alone in an empty apartment building um as does uh, deckard and his wife live in an apartment building that is somewhat habitated um but it's a lot of the apartment buildings are empty or emptying a lot of people um, have left earth because of the fallout yeah um and this chapter ends with jr discovering that there's somebody else in the building and he goes to meet them and discovers that it is a woman who acts a little strangely, um, gives him a few different names that he can call her by, but they end up striking up an acquaintance. Uh, but he is left feeling a little unsettled by the experience. Uh, we shift on back to Deckard, um, who gets a retired list, a retire list, which is a list of, of androids he needs to go and track down. Uh, because the head bounty hunter of the San Francisco Police Department, what a great title, um, has been wounded in the line of work. And uh, Deckard begins the process of tracking down these androids. Um, he flies to Seattle, uh, it, it, which appears to only take, you know, like uh, less. It's like yeah, like less than a normal commute time. He he makes it back to the office later that afternoon, and his boss says something like. Well, that didn't take you long or something like that. Um, but while he's in Seattle, he meets the company, the Rosen Corporation, uh, who make the problematic androids in question, which is a model called the Nexus 6. Um, and they try to trick him into invalidating the test that he uses to discover androids. Um, he sees, sees through the ruse and actually identifies one of the Rosen family as an android herself. And I will kick it back to you. Sure. Um, and we go back to J.R. Isidore. And one other thing about that chapter is that he has this... He, he at one point plugs into something called an empathy box and engages in kind of a shared... Uh, what William Gibson might call it a voluntary shared hallucination with apparently millions of people and an entity, a person, a human, an alien. Um, 
Wilbur Mercer. Wilbur Mercer, who kind of comes across as like an older version of Jesus, um, who is climbing up a mountain and communicating. And it is a, it is a kind of shared virtual reality religious experience that also leads to him getting an actual cut on his arm where Mercer receives a stone thrown from somebody, the enemy, um, on his arm too. And there's a lot of religious significance to this. And J.R. feels um, emotionally and spiritually grounded after having this experience. It it, it, it manages a lot of his anxiety. Um, so J.R., we see him at work. Um, he accidentally treats a real cat um, that he thinks is a mechanical uh, cat, and that cat dies. It's probably not his fault, but his boss is a real a-hole and makes him, just because he's a chicken head and has a stutter, uh, makes him call the owner of the cat um, and explain what happens. And then in a really interesting moment, he does a surprisingly good job at that. And one of the things that one starts this one starts to suspect, at least I start to suspect, is that J.R. Isidore is not really that stupid. Um, he might be kind of slow to put things together, and he might have a lot of social anxiety. I think he might be what we might call kind of like neuroatypical today, but he doesn't really seem unintelligent. He has a very intelligent vocabulary, and he, he's very perceptive. And he even you know, manages this customer service call with a certain amount of aplomb, despite his uh, stutter. And and that's kind of interesting. Um, it, I think it's one of the themes around labeling and tests and and the, the categories that this broader society is assigning to different kinds of people, other mm -hmm. entities. Um, and then, you know, we're back to Deckard on his case. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's like some logistical shell game stuff where his boss is like, oh, there's like a Russian police investigator who's coming. So like, you got to wait for him. And Deckard's like, no, I want to go get started. Send him after me. And through this kind of like shuffling, he thinks he meets up with the Russian cop. Um, the Russian cop uh, is not the Russian cop. Um, it is the android who almost kills Deckard, uh, but he's able to deploy something that kind of invalidates uh, the laser gun that the android is wielding, um, and Deckard blows his head off with a, a, a slug thrower. Interesting. Um, just a, a, a normal old pistol. Snubnose um, 38 special. He <laughs> He's like cleaning the brains out of his hover car and talks to his boss and is like, I'm going for the next one. <laughs> it's just like, wow, they really, he's really like getting after it. He wants that. He wants those bounties. Well, he wants the bounties because uh, he wants to buy a real animal too. That's also that's true. one he, of the things a that's set up. Hilarious scene where he calls up a pet store and tries to negotiate down the price of an ostrich. <laughs> that's true. Yes. <laughs> the ostrich is priced below market at $29,000. Um, and a mechanical ostrich is only $800. The animals cost as much as homes. Yeah. So Deckard goes after the next android, um, an opera singer. Um, she manages to kind of outwit him and calls the police. Uh, there's this very odd scene where... Deckard doesn't recognize this cop. That wouldn't seem strange, but then the cop takes him to a different police station. Um, and it it's a completely walled off Android police station that is posing as a real police station, yep. we learned. Um, and uh, the police chief that he's talking to is an Android. The bounty hunter of this police station is also an Android, but doesn't know it. Uh, and we, we, we hunter, think, you know, it is, we, we think yeah. we're, we're pretty sure, but we we're, we, it hasn't been proved yet. Right. Um, and the bounty hunter ends up killing his boss, the police chief and kind of walks Deckard out of there. Uh, and they head off to try to track down the opera singer. And that is the end of chapter 11, where we read up to today. Quite cliffhangery too. Yeah, yeah. It's a the 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 chapters do end pretty pretty nicely. I think. Yeah. Like, they usually they they either close well or they do lead really nicely to something uh, something next. 
So yeah, um, the thing I wanted to do was do a, a kind of close examination of the opening scene. The game I had was I was just going to read the first page and a half or page or so. Okay. And I want you to keep track of or note the uh, the number of like things that are not that we don't get explained to us yep. like new devices new ways of thinking i don't know maybe when we uh maybe we edit this we can put little like dings or something for every new thing sure okay so <clears throat> chapter one a merry little surge of electricity piped by automatic alarm from the mood organ beside his bed awakened rick deckard surprised it always surprised him to find himself awake without prior notice he rose from the bed, stood up in his multicolored pajamas, and stretched. Now, in her bed, his wife Erin opened her gray, unmerry eyes, blinked, then groaned, and shut her eyes again. You set your penfield too weak, he said to her. I'll reset it, and you'll be awake, and keep your hand off my settings. Her voice held bitter sharpness. I don't want to be awake. He seated himself beside her, bent over her, and explained softly, If you set the surge up high enough, you'll be glad you're awake. That's the whole point. At setting C, it overcomes the threshold barring consciousness, as it does for me. Friendly, because he felt well disposed towards the world, his setting had been at D. He patted her bare, pale shoulder. Get your crude cop's hand away, Erin said. I'm not a cop. He felt irritable now, although he hadn't dialed for it. You're worse, his wife said, her eyes still shut. You're a murderer hired by the cops. I've never killed a human being in my life. His irritability had risen now, had become outright hostility. Erin said, just those poor Andes. I notice you've never had any hesitation as to spending the bounty money I bring home on whatever momentarily attracts your attention. He rose, strode to the console of his mood organ. Instead of saving, he said, so we could buy a real sheep to replace that fake electric one upstairs. A mere electric animal, and me earning all that I've worked my way up to through the years. At his console, he hesitated between dialing for a thalamic suppressant, which would abolish his mood of rage, or a thalamic stimulant, which would make him irked enough to win the argument. If you dial... Erin said, her eyes open and watching. For greater venom, then I'll dial the same. I'll dial the maximum, and you'll see a fight that makes every argument we've had up to now seem like nothing. Dial and see. Just try me. She rose swiftly, loped to the console of her own mood organ, stood glaring at him, waiting. He sighed, defeated by her threat. I'll dial what's on my schedule for today. Examining the schedule for January 3, 2021, he saw that a business-like professional attitude was called for. If I dial by schedule, he said warily, will you agree to also? He waited, canny enough not to commit himself until his wife had agreed to follow suit. My schedule for today lists a six-hour self-accusatory depression, Erin said. Okay. All right, how many... How many unexplained or like new things uh, did you uh, did you tally in there? All right, here's my list. Some of them are sort of subcategories. So yeah, uh, mood organ. Then we get Penfield, which we later figure out is the same thing, but we don't quite know that right away. Mm -hmm. Settings again related to the mood organ, the Penfield. Setting D again related to all of these things, but we still don't know. Then we get cop hands. So he's a cop. No, he's not a cop. No, he's a murderer employed by the cop. No, he's never killed anybody. Only the Andes. These are all in the same category of one thing, but each of those phrases doesn't really make sense. Perhaps if you're paying close attention and you know the title of the book is Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Perhaps you might map Andy to Android and then maybe it would all make sense based on that. Um, real Sheep. Electric sheep. <laughs> thalanic suppressant. Again, related to the mood organ, although I don't know what a thalanic suppressant slash stimulus is. And schedule. 
um, which appears to have something to do with a mood organ too. Mm-hmm. So that's my list. And I, I would say it was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve of the minor ones, but you could also probably divide those up into one, two, three, four super categories. Yeah. yeah. And then kind of my follow-up question is like, you know, in this in this rereading of the book, um, like, what was your experience of, of that information? Like, was it dislocating? Did it flow easily? Like, tell me about your, your experience of, in, of encountering all of that new information. Well, okay, so context. Um, I picked up this book and tried to read it probably around 2010 and maybe got three or four chapters in. I could remember, so I could remember the mood organ. I could remember the pseudo-religion. Mm-hmm. Um, I could remember that was about it. Those were the two. Th- and oh, and I remembered Kipple for some reason. I re- Kipple had stuck in my bag because I think, do you remember a few weeks ago? I was like, oh, yeah, we're going to talk and about I was Kipple. Like, what? Uh, <laughs> and you were like, yeah, Kipple. And, uh, it's like the accretion it, of crap. And I had remembered that correctly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, and Mercerism. Yeah. So I remembered those things. So coming back into it this time. And also, you know, to, to be clear, this scene did not exist in the movie Blade Runner, which I've seen at least twice. Um, this time I was like, oh, yeah, the mood organ. Um, so I remembered what that was. I think that I had the first time I read it, I think I figured out more or less what was going on by the time I got to the end of the mm-hmm. chapter. And, you know, we were talking We did a little mini sode recently where I was talking with you and Lindsay Lajoie, where I gave myself credit for being like a good sci-fi yeah. reader that, you know, sort of good at those sort of immerse picking up little linguistic clues to sort of figure out, OK, what what's going on? Um, but you know, it's still a weird scene because even when you parse everything that's happening and you understand, okay, this is a married couple. He's a bounty hunter. He kills androids. They're having an argument. They have something called a mood organ. He wants to use it to dial their moods into something happy. She doesn't want to do that because she feels like it's inauthentic in some way. It's still a hard scene to kind of make emotional sense of. Mm-hmm. I And I honestly, like, I don't know if this is just clunky writing or if it's intentionally this way. I can't tell to what degree they are bantering or if this is kind mm-hmm. of real anger. I start to get the sense that it is real anger. But of course, when he's like, when she's sort of like, get your filthy cop hands off me. I'm like, wait, these are, these people are married. And she talks to him this way. Is, is this like love banter? I don't. So, and then you get so twisted and tangled with this sort of question of like she wants to dial depression she wants to <laughs> dial depression because she thinks that dialing happiness is sort of inauthentic and she should be connected to sort of real human emotions but then her solution to that is to dial for depression which also seems similarly inauthentic too and then in the end he solves the problem by agreeing to this compromise then he says you know what i'll just dial for both of us and then he dials a setting called in which the wife is is dialed into the mood that sort of like contentment and awareness of the husband's wisdom in all things and that's like <laughs> the end of the scene and and you're like was that supposed to be funny was that supposed to be really disturbing um it is certainly you know given what this book is about you know, it is certainly setting up artificiality and artifice as a hardcore theme, Mm -hmm. right? You know, and we know whether you've seen Blade Runner or not, or once you start reading a little bit and you, maybe you've read the back of the book, you understand at some point pretty soon that this is a guy who hunts androids. He hunts robots and that robots are fake people. But then Mm -hmm. of course and I think like this time reading it, you know, the most recent time reading it, I definitely caught that metaphoric, that sort of symbolic language, which is like, oh, the humans in this book choose their emotions using a machine. Yeah. I think we're being asked what is human and what is a machine in this moment, yeah. too. Um, so, yeah, that's that's th- those were mine. How about you? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the same place. Like I, I found this to be. I really hope that it's like a a wonderful high wire act of irony, mm. which is what it, it feels like. Um, I mean, it's written in 1968, so like maybe not, maybe there are, may, but I don't I don't think so. It 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 like 
the the lady doth protest too much methinks um and uh and and i really do think that that dick here is pointing us tastefully in the direction of of human hypocrisy Mm. um and um and i i just thought that the i was like oh my god like if we substitute antidepressants for the mood organ like this is a conversation from now (laughs) It, um, it, yeah. it is, but it also that, that this scene and much of this book also does feel very 1960s to me. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, yeah. You know, uh, is there a non-female secretary? Sure. Seen anywhere? Sure. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, it's weird because like Philip K. Dick has given us all these futuristic sort of premise things like rocket planes and androids and mechanical sheep on the roof and all of these and, and mercerism and mood organs and yet the structure of society is like watching Mad Men you know it's yeah. like guys in business yeah, totally. like white guys in business suits talking to each other in transatlantic accents sort of trying to outdo each other in various kinds of like genteel pissing contests you know that I mean yes. it's just like watching Don Draper you know and and and, and and the argument they have, I think partly why it gave me pause, it was like it was like watching like Cary Grant and like, you know, Catherine Hepburn have an argument, you know, like, don't you touch that mute organ. I like it just the way it is right now. No, woman, you listen to me. We're going to set the mood organ for what we agreed to set it to. And the husband's always right. You know, and it, I was just like it, it was cartoonish. And I couldn't tell if that was intended or if that's just the way Philip K. Dick thought that people were going to talk in the future. Um, it was very, it, that was very strange. And I will say, and this, this is going to get to my second question is that as I really like this chapter now, having gotten yeah. through this first half and I went back and read that chapter again today too. I like it a lot. It really rewards a second reading or even a third reading, but I also felt like we were in a slow start. Um, it takes us That's funny. A, I, I'm going to let you get to your next question. I, I didn't find it slow starting. Okay, well, that that was my question. Like, yeah, I mean, and why not? Well, here's my rationale, which is our inciting incident doesn't really come until like another two chapters, right? It's not really till Deckard gets to work and he gets assigned, you know, what's his name? Dave Holden or Bill Holden's. um, The names are like wildly unmemorable. Incredibly like 1960s (laughs) waspy. Yeah. Who are like, yeah. You're like, Pokolov. Luba. Luba Lufta. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's like he's he's like sifting through the villain book from like like super dog. Yeah, it's really <laughs> funny. Yeah, you know, it's right that the androids names are sort of ethnic and yeah. the bounty hunters all seem like, you know, just like middle aged white guys with middle aged yeah. waspy I, names. His boss's name is like Howard Bryant. Like, <laughs> yeah. you're right. It's it's 100 percent the cast of Mad Men. Yeah. Um, Howard, but, get down um, here right away. <laughs> like. Test coming from the Russian department. You should read See, about this. Deckard. Deckard. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't think this was a slow start because for me, for some reason, this hit exactly the level of in media res that I really enjoyed. Mm. There was enough detail of like what the world is like. Um, and, uh, and I, I just, I hear all sorts of counter arguments about the opening of Neuromancer Brewing, but like it, something about the writing here wor- really works for me. Hmm. Um, and I think it's because I know what world I'm in. I'm like, oh, okay. Again, we're in a sort of like a different kind of noir than Neuromancer. You're totally right. It is like Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn, like, you know, Philadelphia story in it around, but like, I really love how he just tosses us in and the narration is really simple other than the information that we're getting. Um, And I think that is what is really working. There's no attempt to kind of dress up the prose in any way. Um, And he just kind of lets this conversation unspool as a bit of a way to get us into the world. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, we don't get the inciting incident for a little bit, but I'm intrigued. I'm like, wait a second. Why is she dialing a six-hour self-accusatory depression? I mean, I like, I like laughed out loud at that particular moment. Um, I just really loved the conversation between them that let us learn so much about this world and the animals and the war and yeah, it, it's it's very obviously an expositional plant, 
but it is one that I think is really working. Hmm. Okay. Well, you know, I will say I didn't get through, I, I stalled out after about three chapters. And so, you know, for me, I found this to be a challenging start. Um, yep. And, you know, if we weren't doing this as a podcast, I don't know that I would have picked it up again and read it. But I do think it's rewarded that. To me, I, I have a note somewhere where I wrote, this, this book's virtues are slow to reveal themselves. But by the time we got to the first half, I'm like, okay, I totally, I totally want to know where this is going to. And even though I've seen the movie that was made on this, this feels like it could end in a totally different way. Um, it's, it's really, it's source material, but it's not a faithful adaptation at all, you know? So I get what you're saying, but unfortunately it didn't work for me that way. Where does it start working for you? Well, um, I think the first Isidore chapter, I think is just Mm -hmm. masterful. Um, yeah. And and it's one of the things that's happening, although I will say that like it sort of threw me off as I was reading it pretty recently. The first time I read it, I was like, man, he's just dumping a lot of exposition on us. Like, isn't that supposed to be against the rules? You know, I found my sort of like writing teacher alarm going off. But then I was like, mm-hmm. well, I'll just go with it. And one of the things that's amazing about that chapter is the narration starts out at sort of like godlike levels of, yeah. uh, and then it's almost as though the the omniscient narrator is sort of Google Earth like zooming closer and closer and closer in on Isidore until we're yeah. actually in his brain. And I actually thought that was a really cool trick. And there are moments I'll see if I can find one really quick of, of exposition that did feel. It's kind of like Steinbeck, where Steinbeck just sort of like, I'm just going to tell you what I think is going on in this world that I'm describing. It's got that same <laughs> yeah. kind of quality where he's just sort of like, and then the colonists left because there was too much radiation. Um, I I really started to enjoy it with the Luba Loof uh, chapter. And just, I love how, so she's basically, one of the things she's doing, he suspects that she is an android she is kind of pretending to cooperate, but she is either actually doesn't understand this weird empathy test or is pretending not to understand it or is doing some combination of both because she really doesn't fully understand it because she is an android and according to, you know, Deckard anyway, incapable of empathy. But then she's using her sort of linguistic confusion and other types of confusion to obscure her actual empathetic confusion. And it, that is just done so well. Uh, yeah, I, I <laughs> loved like, that. Yeah. Then I will say I got annoyed because I thought that the device that got him Deckard from there to the fake Android police station was very clumsy. And there yeah. were a number of times where I'm like, look, if the whole point of this fake police station is to like give Luba Loof an escape and an out... They're going to have to kill Deckard at some point. And they had many chances to do that (laughs) that they did not take. And then finally the guy tries to do it at the worst possible time and gets like sawed in half by a laser. (laughs) And I was just like, plotting wise, I found that very, very clunky. But I loved the premise of Deckard. I loved the premise of the fake police station and i love the premise of deckard meeting up and teaming up with another bounty hunter who he strongly suspects is an android yeah the subtext is there's it's impossible to not wonder whether deckard himself might be an android too at this moment and that has actively been suggested by luba loof um and it is also implied you know just by the fact that the other uh investigator whose name is like resh or something like that or Mm -hmm. it's like well if he could be one why couldn't and have fake memories implanted in him certainly that could be the case for deckard uh -hmm. i also found the, the plotting a little clumsy around the um the cohen niece test like the way particularly in the way that like once he sort of sees through the ruse they're like all right well whatever we yeah we tried we almost got you anyway here's what we're thinking and this is why we tried to trick you um you know know, like just just like that whole back and forth with them and the fact that it took him so long to see through the ruse too Mm -hmm. you know so and basically the ruse is he tests her the niece the test appears to indicate that she's an android and then both of them are like, aha, we tricked you. She's not an android. She just grew up on a spaceship. And so Planet. she doesn't yeah, space, right. She doesn't have the references 
that would make sense for this test. And she also doesn't have the values of an earthbound human. A lot of the test has to do with cruelty to animals, which all humans of this era find intolerable. Um, but if you think about it, humans of our era would quite often fail this test um, because <laughs> totally. we're not nearly as empathetic to the suffering of animals as people are in this particular future. So it's an interesting moment. Um, but I, I don't know. I just, there were a number of moments that I found really clumsy like that too. Um, but I, I will say that those three premises, like the, just the raising the question around the test, Lubaloof's mm -hmm. evasion of the test, and then sort of like the, the fake Android police officer, those ideas are just so fun that at this point yeah. I'm kind of drawn in and I like, I like what it's setting Deckard up for, even though I, I thought it kind of clunkily kind of limped its way there at, at moments. Yeah, like he is, I mean, his his command of ideas and expressing ideas in a way that makes you be like, whoa, yep. Yep. is, you know, um, is is up there with the best. Yeah, that's what we're here. Um, we're here for the ideas, right? Yeah. We're not right, really totally. here for the plotting, although there there is some wonderful lyricism, too. Yeah, his his blocking like, you know, you would never let Philip K. Dick block a stage play. <laughs> He'd be like, just stand where you are. And talk. I, <laughs> I like how now my version of Philip K. Dick is like like an FDR accent. Yeah. Like, just stand where you are and, and talk. Say some words. Right. Yeah. No, it is. It's like that. Yeah. And, and I mean, like just the moment where the police chief pulls the laser gun out at him and then Deckard's like, it'll never work. You know, uh, the bounty hunter will, 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 you know, will make you test anyway. Might as well give it up. And he's like, yeah, you're right. I'll put away my laser gun now. <laughs> you know, just, it's like, it, it just, uh, and they're just kind of standing there. There's this kind of waspy politeness that they're doing. It's, it's really yeah. funny where they're sort of like, <laughs> well, we suspect that this man is a replicant and he's probably here to try to kill us all. And, um, you know, he was harassing this woman, which is why we brought him in. And there's absolutely no evidence that he is who he says he is. But at the same time, we have to kind of take him seriously, don't, don't we? You yes. know, just because he's yes, a white yeah. man like the rest of us. When we're doing crimes, we have to remember that logic is the thing that yeah. is superior above all. Yeah, it's, that part is, is awfully clunky. But, um, but yeah, I, once you sort of realize that at once I realized that this book is going to be about testing and categories and fake versus real, then I'm sort of hooked. And, you know, I've mm -hmm. seen the movie. I've seen the movie twice at least, probably three times. And those themes are in that movie too, but played very differently. You know, they're yep. not treated in the same way. Um, yeah, so this is from the J.R. Isidore chapter. Um, it's on page 20 of my edition. And uh, we did this a little while ago when we talked about tone. I got up on my soapbox and was like, tone is not mood or atmosphere. Right. Uh, tone is the author's attitude towards his subject material. Mood and atmosphere are the general emotional feeling of the work. Um, I want to read this section and I want you to tell me what you feel like the mood is sure. um, the mood or the atmosphere of this section or this passage and the world that it uh that it describes um so this is jr isidore he's in his apartment um he's listening to an interview of some uh emigrants um and the the way the emigrants are kind of described as a sort of like a, a vacant vacant and tired like the emigrants are saying that things are good, but you get this sneaking suspicion that maybe it's not. And when you say emigrants, um, they, they have left Earth and they're on some colony, right? Yeah, some they're either on go. Mars or the moon. Right. There's this wonderful sentence uh, from J.R. Isidore's point of view where he says something like the contempt of three planets descended upon him. Mm. And you're like, oh, yep. <laughs> um, so he's just turned the television off. Silence. It flashed from the woodwork and the walls. It smote him with an awful total power, as if generated by a vast mill. It rose up from the floor, up out of the tattered gray wall-to-wall -wall carpeting. It unleashed itself from the broken and semi-broken appliances in the kitchen, the dead machines which hadn't worked in all the time Isidore had lived here. 
From the useless pole lamp in the living room, it oozed out, meshing with the empty and wordless descent of itself from the fly-specked ceiling. It managed, in fact, to emerge from every object within his range of vision, as if it, the silence, meant to supplant all things tangible. Hence it assailed not only his ears, but his eyes. As he stood by the inert TV set, he experienced the silence as visible and, in its own way, alive. Alive! He had often felt its austere approach before. When it came, it burst in without subtlety, evidently unable to wait. The silence of the world could not rein back its greed, not any longer, not when it had virtually won. He wondered, then, if the others who had remained on Earth experienced the void this way, or was it peculiar to his peculiar biological identity, a freak generated by his inept sensory apparatus? Interesting question, Isidore thought. But whom could he compare notes with? He lived alone in this deteriorating, blind building of a thousand uninhabited apartments, which, like all its counterparts, fell, day by day, into greater entropic ruin. Eventually, everything within the building would merge, would be faceless and identical, mere pudding-like kipple piled to the ceiling of each apartment. And, after that, the uncared-for building itself would settle into shapelessness, buried under the ubiquity of the dust. By then, naturally, he himself would be dead. Another interesting event to anticipate as he stood here in his stricken living room alone with the lungless, all-penetrating, masterful world's, world silence. Yeah, I really like the narration in this chapter. To me, the mood is loneliness, resignation, and then a kind of strange introspection overlaid, a kind of interesting analytical quality. And it's weird because Isidore is supposed to be very stupid, but he's very self-aware and he's constantly kind of evaluating his own state of mind too and trying to, you know, he's, he's, he's considering his loneliness and resignation and wondering, is it because of his brain damage or is, mm. it, is it internal to him or is it external to the world? Um, and kind of wishing for somebody to compare notes with. If you were to describe like tactile, you know, or like like sensory touch, feeling, smell, like what what kind of words would you use to describe this environment? I mean, the silence affects his eyes. Yeah. It's almost like a synesthetic thing. Like I imagine the silence as this sort of like gray, green, kipply. The kipple is a good analogy for this. A sort of dusty, gray, rubble mass that's slowly yeah. gathering around him and preparing to envelop him and 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 convert him into itself. You into know, kibble. Into kipple. <laughs> into dust. Yeah. Kipple. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it, well, there's kipple and there's dust, but it's sort of all merged together. That's the sense I have. It's almost like the trash compactor scene in Star Wars, except for yeah. happening very very slowly and slowly yeah. enough that rather than like Luke and Han being like, Oh my God, we got to get out of here. Turn off the night. Instead, they're sort of like, well, one day we're going to get crushed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, it's dense. It's oppressive. Yeah. It is slow, but it is um, like, you can't get away from it. Um, it's inexorable. Um it just it feels so massive and brooding and heavy um and i love the gray green thing that you're coming up with and it just it just i just as a as an exercise in mood i think this is so great the number of like you know useless tattered semi-broken um empty fly speck it's just like austere um, it's just, it's just this like huge thing that is coming for us all. But do you also, and, yeah. do you also, I mean, I get the sense from Isidore too, and maybe it's his dialogue. I also have this sense of kind of a level of calm 
about it. Yeah. You know, that, yeah. that it's not that he's living in terror of this. There's a kind of resignation and that yeah. to some degree he even takes some comfort in his introspection. Do you know, mm-hmm. at one point he uses the word interesting, you know, yeah, that it's going to be almost interesting event to anticipate. Right. Yeah, it is. It is. A, it is an exquisite bouquet of dour emotion. Yeah, it's great. And, and, and it, it's not it's so easy for a passage like this to turn into too much. Yeah. And he's done a really nice job of picking and creating a character for whom this narration isn't too much. And I think that's kind of the that's kind of the genius of Isidore here. Um, you see the movie, you do meet a character named Jr. who has the same sort of hapless, stuttering, um, kind of helplessness yeah. that that helps kind of power his connection to the replicants in the movie. Right, um, and you, you feel like that there's a little bit of that here too. There's kind of the. Um, you know, like the the kid who doesn't see that his best friend is a robot right. sort of thing. Right. Um, and um, yeah, and I just, just reading this, I was like, what kind of book are we in? Like, it was well, like, I felt like I was reading Thomas Hardy. So um, coming out of that, I, maybe my question this raises too, I agree. I love this chapter. Do you feel like the book holds together? Or does it feel, sometimes I kind of experience it as like, Every chapter is its own brilliant surrealist short story, but with a different mood. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't feel like the mood is consistent. I feel like sometimes we're doing irony. Sometimes mm-hmm. we're doing Catherine Hepburn and the Philadelphia story and satire. Sometimes we're doing Cat and Mouse Detective. And sometimes we're doing creeping. Keeping up with the Jetsons. Keeping up with the Jetsons. <laughs> and sometimes we're doing like creeping, kipple oppressive loneliness surrounding yeah. you know that 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 uh, yeah so i'm just curious like does it does it feel like one thing to you or does it feel does it feel no, like no it doesn't <laughs> there's 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 a little of there's hints of the neuromancer problem here but i but not for me but not as much as as the neuromancer issue because i think that I think that Philip K. Dick really has a sense of what he wants to do and say, but I think you're totally right that each of these chapters is sort of a brilliant expose of what it is, whatever it is he's trying to get a, get across in that chapter. And it's, it's almost always entertaining. And then, then sometimes it's just kind of weird. Yeah. Like when he kills uh, Pokolov, like, there's just this odd moment where he's like, he even says the wrong thing. He's like, he's like, you're not Pakalon, yeah, you're Kadali. I like that. And then the android's like, aren't you getting that reversed? <laughs> and I'm like, wait a second. What is that? And then he just, then he just, then the laser doesn't work and he blows his head off. Right. Well, there's also a moment there too where it feels like we're reading a comic book because then because the 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 android says something like. No matter, my laser doesn't work. I'll just wring your pencil neck. <laughs> you know, <You're> right. <laughs> which it feels like you're reading like a Stan Lee comic from 1962. You know, like yeah. that can't stop Doctor Doom. <laughs> yeah, there is there is a lot of there, there is a lot of that. I, I'm I don't know. I I wonder why it's not bothering me as much. I think the I think because the the density of the sentences is turned down in a way that I found, I found, I found Neuromancer to be like 50% overwritten. And, and I think I find this about 10% underwritten Mm. in, in terms of like the blocking and the stitching of the scenes together and stuff like that. Um, I do really love the, his willingness to just take us to the next scene like there's one where he's like leaves the police department. And I think the next paragraph is like his hover car settled down on top of the Rosen corporation in Seattle. And I was like, God damn it. Now that is some economical travel writing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I also, I mean, I love, I love his just willingness to get weird. You know, it's sort of like every chapter to me feels like a different episode of the twilight zone. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It does maybe bother me a little bit that I don't think they hold together that well. It Mm -hmm. feels like I'm reading a, a collection of short stories that are thematically linked. um, And also kind of 
form something like a plot. And I mean, there definitely mm-hmm. is a plot, right? Deckard has to hunt down all the androids. Is he going to do it? Is he not? Are they going to kill him first? Is he an android? I mean, like there, you know, you get all that stuff, but the, 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 I'm at my happiest in this book when I'm just sort of reflecting at the events of a particular chapter. And Mm -hmm. I do, though, find myself being very aware that I'm reading a book a lot of the time Mm -hmm. as I'm reading this book. And I'm sort of like, oh, that was a wonderful sentence, Mr. Dick. Or like, oh, wow, Mr. Dick, what a fascinating premise, you know, as opposed to just kind of immersive. And maybe that's my question to you um, is, does this feel is this a good story? Huh. And it's a separate question from, is it a good book? Right. And it's a separate question from, is it a good plot? Right. Yeah. Because plot is a mechanical thing that writers do and they do it well, or they do it poorly in the same way that a singer or a musician is going to play chords effectively or, or poorly. Um, is it a good book is a, is, is a big, is a valid question and also a gigantic subjective question right and is it a good story i feel like is kind of in between it's sort of the combination of an a writer's ability to plot and their ability to deploy the ideas in a mostly seamless way um that eventually makes the reader read the next sentence yeah. and believe enough of the prior the, the the current sentence to read the next sentence is it a good story? Um, boy, that's a great question. It's a very simple setup with a very interesting philosophical idea behind it. Um, I have been finding myself easily reading the next sentence and, and sort of tearing through it pretty... It's a, it's a good page turner. Um, so I do want to know what happens next, but I'm more interested in what happens to JR. Mm-hmm. Like that's the, you know, we sort of leave JR as he's wondering about his new, um, his new neighbor. And even though I know that the action is mostly going to revolve around Deckard, I find my attention, the story pulled back there Mm. because it's weird. He's like a wonderful, strange character. And and this woman who has moved in first says that her name is Rachel Rosen, which we know is not true. And then says that it's a a different name. Her name is Pris or Priest or something like that. Um, And then is like, no, you should just call me Miss Stratton. Um, And it's just, I want to see that story unfurl. I'm happy to go along for the ride. It feels a little weird that he's just, it feels a little video gamey. Like he's like, great, killed one on to the next one. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I care that much about Deckard and I find him maybe so cartoonish that he's starting to feel bad, but the other bounty hunter gets him out of the police station, you know, which is a dangerous place for Deckard. Um, And Deckard has this moment of sort of like, an android just helped me out, and I might have to retire him. Oh, what irony. You know, like, like Deckard, it kind of like, you know, we were talking about Case being a meathead. I feel like Deckard's a double meathead, you know? Um, It's like, dude... Do, do like can you have some more emotional introspection than whether or not you can afford a fucking ostrich? Well, <laughs> maybe he can't because he is incapable of empathy because of his <laughs> construction. I mean, I honestly don't know. Have you read this book before? I don't think I have. Yeah, I, I think this is my first time. Yeah, and like I said, I got. I don't know what's going to happen. I got three chapters into it. Um, you know, I, I certainly where I sense we're certainly going is Deckard is going to have some realization in which he is no longer able to tell the difference between an android and a human. And those categories are going to collapse. I think that's where we're headed. But what he does about that and whether that is him or whether that is something something or somebody that he cares about or whether, I don't know. And yeah, I have no idea what's going to happen to Isidore. And I agree, he's much more likable. He's the most likable mm-hmm. character in the book, really. Um, so sad. I was reading that chapter again the one that you just read from it just a little bit beforehand i was like man this is bleak you know this is a man with no hope whatsoever as far as i can tell his body has been wrecked he's slowly being poisoned 
his every all of his trajectory is downward although then he has that moment of sort of like doing the good customer service call and i'm like where is that going to take us you know like know. like maybe maybe can he take his iq test again you know like this time with a like you know penalty for neurodivergent people or a handicap <laughs> yeah, like totally. you know like he I, I am really fascinated in what's going to happen. And I'm definitely up for the second. The book has hooked me now. You know, it, it, for me, it was a slow start and it took me a little bit. But, um, you know, I would not put it down at this point, even if we were not making a podcast yeah. about it. Do you believe that the chief of police of the San Francisco Police Department has sway with the Russian intelligence system? <laughs> Um, well, okay. So remind me, what is, what is the plot point in which he specifically is said to have sway with the... There's like this whole section where it's like, it seems that the Rosen Corporation's ability to continue doing work hinges on Chief of Police Bryant and also like... There is some level of it's posited that there's some level of agreement between the chief of police and like the Russian police mm. state. Mm -hmm. And um, and it, it, it's, it just struck me as like that's those seem really incongruous. OK, so here's how uh, I understood those plot points. And I may have missed something. I mean, the book is a little bit dense at times, but I understood that the Russian intelligence got in touch with the San Francisco police because a because of the Nexus 6 had escaped and mm -hmm. were thought to be in Northern California. So this is a major escape. And the, the San Francisco Police Department is the local relevant local authority, but also because they had some information that the test they use for androids mm -hmm. droids might not work in certain cases. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it was schizophrenic humans uh, with, with a flat affect or something yeah. like that, which we, which we learn... <laughs> That Deckard and his wife have flat effect, or there's some <laughs> reference to that early in the uh, earlier in the book too. So I didn't necessarily think that the San Francisco police chief was influencing the Russian intelligence mm -hmm. agency, but instead was being contacted by them. Now I did understand that they might have some power to make things difficult for the android, the Rosen Android Corporation or whatever they're called. But they also, it seems like their hands are tied because of some kind of jurisdiction of the mm -hmm. Rosen's parent company being on Mars or something like that. Yeah. Apparently their parent company is an automobile manufacturer on Mars. And yeah. and um, so so they're able to sort of avoid regulation, you know, not unlike the Tessier Ashpools and uh, not unlike the Musks. Um, and I didn't fully understand all that. I didn't fully understand that scene. But I do think that that Android company would be in trouble if it turned out that there was no reliable way to distinguish their androids from humans. Mm -hmm. But again, this feels like clunky plotting because they're the ones trying to sabotage the test that Decker right. uses. So again, it's a little bit weird. It's a little bit confusing. Maybe there's an explanation in the book for that. But um, I mean, I, you know, again, I think there's some clunky plotting. Sometimes the characters behave in ways that just feel a little bit inexplicable. And it's kind yep. of just like Dick's just got to like, get Deckard to the next set piece. It's like yep. when we're in Luba Loof's dressing room, he's like, okay, what's the next cool idea? It's the police station full of androids. How do we get him there? <laughs> android cop. And I'm like, yeah, yeah but if the android cop's working with Luba Loof, why don't they just kill him and hide the body? Right. You know, like that's what they're going to do <laughs> no. anyway, right? So they keep the ruse going and then the ruse falls apart. It, it, it's, there are a number of little moments like that where where you're sort of like, well, if this is what they're trying to do, you would think they would have done it more effectively. Yeah. And yeah, I think your I think your explanation fits with the book and it's what the book is trying to explain either also. But it it was just that was another one of those moments where I was like, that feels off. And and like all of these plot points, I think, are probably solvable with a little bit of work or some cleverness, you know, mm -hmm. and. Um, and, and yeah, I don't know. I don't quite know what to make of that. I wonder, is this one of those things where it's like, I remember when I was listening to Bob Dylan for the first time, maybe as like a young teenager and I was a little bit underwhelmed because I was like, oh, this is just like a bunch of other people I've heard who are on the radio today. And then you sort of have to do your history and you have to be like, none of those people would be doing that thing 
without Bob Dylan. So Philip K. Dick, mm. you know, but it may be part of what's going on here is that the idea of androids masquerading as police officers is just like embedded in that's not that hard for me to swallow just because it's yep. been around. You know, I've seen Terminator, you know, yeah. uh, I've seen Terminator <laughs> too. I've seen a bunch of things that Philip K. Dick influenced such that yeah. the ideas I'm like, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. whatever. Like they're replicants or they're androids. Okay. Like because of that, maybe a reader at the time would have just been too busy having their mind blown by some totally. of the layers of yeah. abstraction and sophistication and and things like that and the, what is real and what's not real and the way the way that that metaphoric is played across in so many different ways that they might not have noticed the clunkiness and it it's once those ideas are digested that's when you sort of that's when you start seeing the seams and the seams start yeah. kind of bothering you a little bit more Perhaps. Yeah, I think you've totally hit on on my pro my issue with Neuromancer mm. is like when I layer on my 2023 understanding of like digital stuff and cyberpunk and whatnot, then the world of Neuromancer begins to crumble a little bit um, in a, in a way that's unfair to 1984 mm. William Gibson. Right. Um, and I think I think yeah, you you did a really that was a really good explanation of the of why this book is I think succeeding but also the little clunky well shall we go to trivia okay um so the voight kampf test in do androids dream of, of electric sheep is the measure of empathy that a human or an android can display empathy appearing to be the thing that separates humans and androids in this bizarro world kampf means struggle or fight uh and it's a word with some unsavory associations in our world uh, Voigt means A, people, B, overseer or enforcer, or C, business person. People, overseer, or business person. I'm going to go with B, overseer. You are correct. Woo! Yes. Um, yeah, Voigt Kampf basically translates to overseer struggle. It's very funny. I I, I, um, I was digging around on this because I was like, well, I know what Kampf means because of Mein Kampf. Um, and then uh, Karl Ove Knausegaard, the, the Norwegian writer with like the six volume autobiography, I, he, he called that Mein Kampf. Ah. It's called it's called My Struggle in sort of like a very gutsy act of yeah. uh, Hitler appropriation. Right. Um, and so I was like, okay, I know that Kampf means struggle. Philip K. Dick is like way too smart a person for Voigt not to really mean something here. Um, and yeah, I think overseer struggle is really like, that's the thing this book is about. Yeah, I know that um, Dick had read a lot of uh, like biographies of Hitler and Third Reich and stuff like that. And he isn't, you know, one of his novels is a, is about an alternative history where the, mm -hmm. the Germans and Japanese won World War II. That makes sense. I didn't know that. I was kind of going with cognates. And part of the reason I had that guess is that it seems like often cognates like a Voigt or Veit or Veit are used, if you think about like Watchmen isn't... Mm -hmm. um, kind of the Superman-like character, Adrian Veidt or Voigt or something. And I think oh, yeah. I think that's the case in The Boys, that sort of thing that feels a lot like Watchmen. Isn't it Voigt Corporation that, like, made the superheroes? And so it just, it seemed, I, that was that was where I was getting that guess from, is that, that, that sort of association. I also was pretty sure Voigt did not mean people. So Well, I threw that in there because of Volk. Ah, you know, I was trying right. to lead you astray with Volk because I could see people struggle as right. another, you know, perhaps sure. thing for this. Yeah, is it and, the struggle to determine whether this is a person, right? Yeah, and and business person struggle, I thought also, I'd be like, well, that's a very German way to, like, talk about capitalism. Um, yeah, I think you could also run this book through, like, a real strong, like, Marxist critical theory lens, and it would be really cool. Uh, um, yeah, there's some... Yeah, there, I mean, there's a there's a lot going on. I mean, similar to Neuromancer, you know, in terms yeah. of like who's working for whom, um, and who ultimately is, you know, the the powerful entity, and you know, yeah. in in these cases. All right, so your trivia. Um, yeah. I'm actually just mentioned the man in the high castle, which is the other 
famous Philip K. Dick novel. Many consider it mm-hmm. to be the better book, um, his, mm-hmm. his best novel, but it, it's the sort of the other prominent one. Um, and one theory for why it's good is that he, in writing, plotting out the novel, opted to surrender control of the characters' destinies to a kind of semi-randomized process, if that makes sense, in Wonderful. the following way. So, A, he did that by consulting the I Ching. B, he randomized their destinies with a rudimentary 12-sided die, which he created from a dodecahedron he found at an import store, which was originally associated with Vietnam and the Silk Road. C, he assigned the characters the same destinies as characters in the Christopher Marlowe play Tamberline the Great. Iching, rudimentary 12-sided die, Tamberlane the Great. By Christopher Marlowe. <laughs> Not like an Italian ripoff. <laughs> not not afra ben or you know john webster for god's sake (laughs) two-bit elizabethan hacks um he's christopher marlowe is like the the scotty pippin of of uh ancient playwriting (laughs) do you know how christopher marlowe died no he was stabbed in the eye Doesn't that actually happen in Shakespeare in Love? Doesn't does doesn't Marlowe die mid like midway through the Probably. the movie? I think that that play that movie is pretty close to. Uh, yeah. they, they do play. John Webster shows up in a very funny little aside. He's the boy who is feeding the feeding the mice to cats. Right. Yeah. Do you like plays? I like them when they're bloody. <laughs> um, uh, I'm gonna go with. Uh, yeah, you're so good at this, and I've been so wrong so often. Um, don't think it's Tamberlane the Great for some reason. Uh, I am gonna go with B. It's A. Consult the oh. I Ching. Turn it. I feel guilty because like a, a rudimentary twelve-sided die for a D and D guy is. I like, know. it's such. Well, bait. and also like there was so much detail, and I need to start. I need to start like. Like, whatever the one is the most detailed now <laughs> is, like, your tell. I need to start. I do, in- I do like this, though. I'm, I'm, I'm infinitely more comfortable when you are winning trivia every time. <laughs> I don't know that I'm winning every time. Also, if you go back to the beginning of our... The first few episodes, you tended to get the trivia more often than I did. But um, Yeah, and then you went on a run, and then I went on a run, and, and again, now I'm in a slump. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, and we're heading into the postseason. JPD. What are we doing next? We're doing the second half of this book, uh, pages or chapters uh, twelve uh, through twenty-two of Philip K. Dick's "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" And I don't know what's going to happen. We're doing the second half of this book. I'm going to read the credits like I'm from Boston. <laughs> so, up a middle brow is a small point production. Chris Bag and Jesse Dukes are the real sheep of our production team. Sheesh. Music by Ben Payjack and Jesse Dukes. Design and website by Chris Bag. You can learn more about us at uppermiddlebrow.com. We could use some more ratings and reviews. I don't know what accent to do my part in. I don't know. I could try. I don't I don't know that I have I certainly don't have the Boston accent. And a reminder, Chris and I are both writers and editors and can help you with your writing, podcasting, or editing project. You can see some of our portfolios and learn more at our respective websites. ChrisBag.com and jessedukes.com. Check it out. Get in touch if you want to talk about how we can help you with your project, big or small. Buddy. (laughs) 